I'll go ahead and invite you to open up your Bible because I say it just about every week. We got a lot of ground to cover and I always mean it, but this time it really feels like we might not get out of here on time. So uh, if you have a Bible, open up, if you will, to Luke chapter five. We're gonna be in verses 27 through 39 this morning. As you're opening there, I'm gonna go ahead and uh, give you the disclaimer, so to speak, that things could get a little heavy this morning. Uh, we've been in this book of the Bible now for 15 weeks. We're about to finish up chapter five. You can do the math and see how long we're probably gonna be in it for the weeks and months to come. Um, but as I've said before, uh, over the course of the last several weeks and months, that there's something about slowing down uh, from overdrive to second gear and taking a Sunday stroll through a book of the Bible like this that has a way of, of bringing things off of the page and animating things in a way that might not be the case otherwise. And so... Uh, when I say it might get a little heavy, what I mean is we've seen a lot of miracles so far in Luke's gospel account, uh, but we're gonna see one of the most desperate moments here as it pertains to a need for the miraculous work of Jesus Christ, um, as it pertains to characters in, the, in this story and uh, as it pertains to what's happening in the world as we know it today and this part of redemptive history that we find ourselves personally. And so let me pray for God to do that great miracle and we'll jump in and we'll get after it. Lord, we come in this morning and we're needier than we know. We're more desperate for you than we know. There are parts of our lives that, that we're operating in, in our own strength, our own perceived goodness, and we're missing something, as we're gonna see this morning. Uh, we're missing joy, we're missing the party, so to speak. Lord, would you rescue us from the chains of self-righteousness this morning? One of the greatest blind spots in the church and outside of the church, arguably the greatest obstacle to salvation and sanctification. Holy Spirit, we're desperate for you to do that great work if you don't move in power in these moments to come as we sit with, with your word, this will be a massive exercise in futility. And so I pray that you would give me a feeling sense of the things that I preach and that with that would come the kind of inflection and nonverbals and animation that, that these words that we're about to look at warrant so that our hearts might be stirred, might be moved, so that we might leave this place transformed, different than we came in, with a deeper, greater joy than we walked into the room with. God, would you do that? Not so that we might get the glory, which would be counterintuitive to everything that we're about to read, that you might get the glory, but that we might receive the joy and that it might be for our good. We ask you to do that, Holy Spirit, that great work. In the name of Jesus Christ, to the glory of the Father, I pray it. Amen. So as we pick up the story that Luke's out to tell, I wanna do this from time to time, especially as we're slowing down and working our way through a book of the Bible over the course of time and give you this sort of previously on Luke, kind of Netflix recap of what's going on here. As we pick up the story here at the end of chapter five, Simon Peter and his friends have recently left everything behind to follow Jesus, having come face to face with the glory, the majesty, and the holiness of God in the face of Christ so that Chapter five is actually where the real discipleship begins in Luke's gospel account. As Peter and his friends sit at the feet of the rabbi Jesus and learn what it means to truly follow him, to truly participate in his kingdom work. 
Two of those earliest of discipleship moments coming back to last week involving the healing of a leper and a paralytic. Both stories showing us something of our desperate need for Jesus. The story of the paralytic showing us our need for forgiveness. Christ having come to deliver lost people from the paralysis of sin, you might say. The story of the leper showing us something of our need for the healing touch of Jesus who alone has the power to make us whole, to make us clean. Both stories, too, showing us something of what it means to to enter into Jesus's mission. As Jesus receives and restores in the leper one of society's untouchables, forcing us to, to reckon with our own notions of who we perceive to be beyond the reach of God's grace. The story of the paralytic, torn roof and all, remember, presenting us with the question of how far we're willing to go to bring people into contact with the healing touch and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. This morning's passage is only gonna build on those foundations as we continue to see something more of who Jesus is, why he's come, and the implications of what it means to know him, to love him, to follow him. If you pick up the story, chapter five, verse 27, Luke tells us, after this, that is after the healing of the paralytic, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. In the wake of that healing that we looked at last week, Jesus happens upon a tax collector by the name of Levi. He's sitting in his booth. He's, he's about his job in the moment. Just as a bit of a backdrop, so we're tracking with what's going on in human history at this point. In Jesus's day, tax collectors were swindlers by nature, by reputation, subcontracted by the Romans for the collection of revenue so that Anyone who wanted to be a tax collector would simply put in a bid for an area and the Romans would award the contract to the highest bidder so that the tax collector would then collect from the people not only the amount of the bid, but a little bit on top of that so that they can make a profit for themselves, put food on the table. But sadly, many tax collectors would collect far more than was necessary to make a decent living, leaving people in burdensome financial situations. You might remember going back to Luke chapter three, if you were around then, tax collectors came to be baptized by John in the wilderness, asking John what they should do in keeping with uh, repentance, with obedience. And John said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Everybody knew in John's day, in Jesus's day, that there was something sinister going on in that tax collecting occupation and role in society. Not only that, but to add insult to injury, they weren't robbing just anybody, but their own people, considered traitors in acting as a representation of Roman oppression toward their own Jewish kinsmen, considered by many of the Jews to be enemies of God for that very reason. You can see why many in society would want nothing to do with a crowd like that, leaving them to run in their their own social circles with each other. Who wants to be friends with people who work at the IRS, right? In the words of one commentator, sinfully rich and socially ostracized. That's what it was to be a tax collector. Here Jesus happens upon a tax collector by the name of Levi, a man who will soon come to, come to know more famously as Matthew. He wrote a book of the Bible. A man whose job, uh, likely according to many scholars, was to collect a, a toll tax or a, or a tariff of some kind along the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Here comes Jesus And he says to him, follow me. Notice something right off the bat of the economy of God here. 
in Jesus's gathering of his core disciples. He doesn't go after 12 theologically astute men with years of ministry experience on their resume. In fact, as we'll see, those people are oftentimes the most contrarian, the most hostile to Jesus's kingdom agenda. No, Jesus goes after society's motley crew. Those who know they have no business of following him, being forgiven, much less being a part of his kingdom work. Think about that. That's how Jesus Christ, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, decides to set the world on fire. That's Jesus's church leadership strategy. That's Jesus's kingdom advancement strategy. Poor in spirit sinners, desperate for and having tasted true forgiveness in Christ. It's the upside down nature of the kingdom of of God. Jesus is gonna unpack it uh, greatly. He's gonna uh, expound it well when we get to it soon enough in his, as Luke refers to it, sermon on the plain. Jesus calls Levi a, a swindling extortionist and hated member of society to follow him. A reminder that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. One of the early church fathers, Cyril of Alexandria, in describing Levi, says, a man greedy for dirty money, filled with an uncontrolled desire to possess, careless of justice in his eagerness to have what didn't belong to him, yet he was snatched from the workshop of sin itself and saved when there was no hope for him at the call of Christ, the savior of us all. All The name that, that Levi would soon receive The name Matthew, it means gift from God. It's exactly what his new life in Christ was. He didn't earn it. It was the gift of God's grace given to him freely. So that one of the outworkings of a passage like this, one of of the cries, the exhortations that I would give is don't give up on the Levi's of this world. Because in the words of one commentator, God turns Levi's into Matthew's. It's what he does. Jesus says to the spiritually bankrupt, swindling tax collector, Levi, follow me. Verse 28, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Again, like the man in the parable of the treasure hidden in the field, Matthew 13, selling everything he has in his joy to obtain the treasure of Christ. A far greater sacrifice in this case than Peter and his friends who who could have returned to their boats if things didn't work out with Jesus. Levi, according to most scholars, was likely the most wealthy of all the apostles in a career that to abandon his post would have likely infuriated the Romans so that there was little to no chance of him coming back to his job. But Levi just doesn't care because he's come face to face with the glory and grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle says in his commentary on this passage, nothing can happen to a man which ought to be such an occasion of joy as his conversion. It is a far more important event than being married or coming of age or being made a nobleman or receiving a great fortune. It is the birth of an immortal soul, he says. It is the rescue of a sinner from hell. It is a passage from death to life. It is being made a king and priest forevermore. It is being provided for both in time and eternity. It is adoption into the noblest and richest of all families, the family of God. If you're truly among the redeemed this morning, I mean, you should be shouting hallelujahs right now. 
right? Levi surely was. We, we know that Levi doesn't leave everything behind begrudgingly, but rather his heart is happy and full because Luke goes on to tell us, verse 29, and Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. All right, notice that Levi, in turning to follow Jesus, repenting of his sin, notice that he does the most nonsensical, anti-Dave Ramsey thing that a person could possibly do when there's no guarantee of a next paycheck. He spends a portion of his savings to host one of the great throwdowns of redemptive history with Jesus as the guest of honor. His first act of obedience, by the way, as a follower of Jesus in the aftermath of walking away, not only from his job, but his pre-Jesus way of living, sparing no expenses because Jesus is a worthy investment. He knows, he understands that without Jesus, there's nothing to celebrate. In addition, Notice that he also invites his swindling tax collecting friends. He doesn't run to this holy huddle mentality immediately to get away from, from the dirty of society. He invites his swindling friends because he can't imagine them missing out on the treasure that he's found. Like the men who going back to last week tore a hole in the roof so that they could lower their friend, friends into the presence of Christ. In this case, Levi tearing a hole in his cash reserves so that his lost friends can, can have a seat at the table of forgiveness and grace. Verse 30, not everyone in Luke's gospel account is fond of scenes like these. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink tax collectors and sinners? You're gonna see two themes continue to emerge as we walk through this incredible book of the Bible, namely the growing controversy between Jesus and the religious leaders on the one hand and the growing sense of hope and joy in the hearts of those who trust in Jesus on the flip side. Here the scribes and Pharisees pose a question to Jesus' disciples in large part because they're absolutely scandalized by what's taking place before their very eyes. Tim Chester in his book, A Meal with Jesus, if you struggle with evangelism, this would be a great one to grab. He says, grace turns the world of religious people upside down. They think of life as a ladder. Your righteous acts move you up the ladder toward God. Your sense of well-being comes from your place on the ladder. Nothing makes you feel better than being able to look down on other people. Pharisees, he says, don't miss this, they need tax collectors to make them feel righteous. That's how you know you're in the presence of a Pharisee. When everyone else around them is perceived as failing to measure up. On the flip side, if you're always the one looking around at a, a sea of people failing to live up to your standard, your example, you just might be the Pharisee. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they, they wouldn't have been caught dead sitting at a table with people like Levi, any more than they would have been seen within 50 yards of a leper going back to last week. Not only are Levi and his friends ceremonially unclean, a fast track to defilement, but to share a meal with people like that, to sit around a table with anyone in Jesus's day was a sign of acceptance, of identification, of brotherhood, of friendship. In this case, with society's most disreputable as Jesus gathers around the table with sinners and tax collectors. Like, 
What is he doing? That's what's running through their minds. He may as well have been seated at a table of lepers. As far as the scribes and Pharisees were concerned, made no sense to those who perceived themselves to be righteous in the economy of God, among the clean, among the well, standing in their own minds on one of the higher rungs of God's ladder, so high up in the clouds of their own arrogance and self-righteousness that the only way to look was down. And by the way, to see God, you gotta look in the other direction. Jesus responds on behalf of his disciples, and I really love this about Jesus. He stands up to the religious bullies in the room, and he takes the opportunity to leverage the criticism of the religious elite into a mission statement. All right, if Jesus had a website and you went to the mission statement link, this is what you'd get. Verse 31, and Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you were around, you might remember Jesus' teaching in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth where he called a crowd of people to come to the end of themselves, like the widow of Zarephath, like Naaman the leper. That's the heart of what Jesus is saying here. I've come for the self-abandoning, those desperate for cleansing, healing, and forgiveness, like the leper, going back to last week, like the paralytic. In the words of one commentator, and if you're among the redeemed, you'll really love and appreciate this. The church is the only fellowship in the world where the one requirement for membership is the unworthiness of the candidate. See, the problem for the religious leaders in this moment is that they don't see their great need, perceiving themselves to be spiritually healthy in the eyes of God. They're missing it, and this is, who this is heavy. They're missing it because self-righteousness always seems to be a blind spot for the self-righteous. We'll unpack it more deeply soon enough, but Jesus tells a parable in Luke 18 that gets to the heart of it all. Uh, A parable he tells to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Luke 18, verses 10 through 14, Jesus says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, Jesus says, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified, this one over here, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In Jesus' parable, the Pharisee couldn't see the sickness of his own heart, only in the hearts of everyone else around him. In truth, if I could just say it this way, self-righteousness is simply another form of sin. Perhaps the most difficult obstacle to salvation, to sanctification, to true freedom and joy. I've shared this quote before. Charles Spurgeon once said, our imaginary goodness is more difficult to conquer than our actual sin. Man can sooner be cured of his sicknesses than be made to forego his boasts of health. 
Human weakness is a small obstacle to salvation compared with human strength. There lies the work and the difficulty. Hence, he says, it is a sign of grace to know one's need of grace. He who knows and feels that he is in darkness has some light on his soul. The Pharisees, they're unwilling to accept Jesus' diagnosis and fall at his feet in neediness and desperation for the gospel cure, perceiving themselves to be in right standing with God, in a good place with God, as is the case with many religious people even today. The religious leaders go on to continue their grumbling. We'll see a lot of that over the course of this sermon series. Verse 33, they said to him, well, the disciples of John fast off often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. The Pharisees, were, they were known for their ascetic lifestyle, as was John the Baptist and his disciples. The difference is, and there's a huge difference, John practiced such a lifestyle in preparation for the coming Messiah, in longing, in waiting, in hunger for Jesus to come. And he recognized Jesus as such when he came face to face with the promised one. And, and we just sang this, what, what happened? He cried out, I've gotta get low. I gotta decrease, I gotta get out of the way so that everybody can see Jesus for who he is. He must increase his reputation, his worthiness, his glory. The Pharisees, in contrast, practiced that kind of ascetic lifestyle in order to show themselves glorious. Having created new laws that God never imposed upon his people. That fence, it's a little too big to play in. We need to make it smaller. That's why a lot of people think Christianity is boring. A fence within the fence. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary on this passage, he says, this is the first rule of the legalist. The legalist legislates where God leaves people free. He takes you may and turns it into you must. And that is absolutely fatal to a healthy Christian life. The Pharisees, he says, who considered themselves the ultimate standard of righteousness were the fathers of this kind of legalism. Committed not only to a two days a week fasting regimen, but to purposefully looking gloomy in their hunger so that everybody would see their great sacrifice. Not to mention the several daily formal times of, of prayer which would happen at street corners and in the temple, public places so that they might be seen by others and thought well of. And there's nothing wrong with spiritual disciplines, right? Fasting and praying, Jesus talks about those things in his Sermon on the Mount how to do those things in a God-honoring way. There's something terribly wrong with leveraging those kind of disciplines in a, as a means of self-justification, as a rung-climbing means of self-glory. Having been criticized for time spent in the company of sinners, think about this, Jesus now is criticized for celebrating, for having a good time. His disciples seemed to be a bit too happy, a bit too cheery. In the words with, of one commentator, the Pharisees are suspicious of joy. As are many religious people today, they look in on the church and you can't be that happy. Those with a pharisaical spirit, oftentimes the greatest buzzkills of all, heaping heavy burdens on others where Jesus would heap freedom and joy. Right? We know, we know that Jesus' disciples, they actually did pray often. 
Luke tells us that. He makes it clear in other parts of this writing. We know that Jesus has already modeled it. We've already seen it in Luke's gospel account, going off to places of solitude to pray and be with the Father. The problem for the Pharisees is that Jesus and his disciples don't pray the way they think they should and when they think they should, in the appropriate you must sort of way. On the other hand, the Pharisees were actually right in declaring that Jesus' disciples were an eating and drinking crowd. However, in the blindness of their own religiosity, they missed the heart of the matter. Look at verse 34. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. Fasting, again, it was a sign of waiting. It's what we see in the life of John the Baptist, a groaning in hunger for the arrival of God's kingdom. What Jesus is saying is that that time of waiting in this moment that we're looking at of redemptive history, the waiting's over. Heaven's king is right there. He's standing in front of them and they're missing it having stepped into the slums of human history to inaugurate the the coming kingdom of God. That yes, there would come a day when Jesus would be carried away to die in the place of sinners, a day in which fasting would make all the sense in the world. But Jesus says here, that day has not yet come. The bridegroom is here, the one you've been waiting for. And the appropriate response to the presence of the bridegroom is to eat, drink, and be merry. And not in a pagan, fatalistic sort of way, because none of this matters, but in a let's glorify God as best we can in the presence of God. In Jesus's day, this might surprise many of us, they knew how to party harder than we do. A wedding was oftentimes a week-long celebration, seven days of good food, fine wine, and dancing. Sounds a lot like Levi's house party, doesn't it? It's because Levi understands that the the appropriate response for one who finds himself or herself in the presence of Jesus. who, Who goes to a wedding reception and sits on the sidelines, refuses to dance, refuses to partake of the buffet? That's silly. Jesus says, how silly to abstain from food and drink at a wedding. Makes a lot of people in the church uncomfortable, let's be honest, as it sounds like a license for going off the deep end. It's the very thing that the Apostle Paul addresses in Romans chapter six. First five chapters, he talks about the lavish, unbelievable, wondrous grace of God in Jesus Christ, and he hypes it up so much that he cuts off the question at the pass to begin chapter six of Romans, and he says, now I know what you're thinking. The question in your mind is, shall we sin all the more so that grace may abound? Shall we ramp up the sin so that everybody can see the grace covering it? And Paul says, by no means, That's not what the gospel does. See, Levi understands that grace must be celebrated and that true grace celebrated doesn't take liberties that Jesus never intended. You might ask, well, well, what about us? And we're on the other side of the the cross. What, What do we do with these words? What time is it for us? Is it a time of fasting? Is it a time of feasting? And the answer is both. On the one hand, Jesus is present with us by his spirit as we're united to him by faith and abide in him as branches abide in a vine, John 15. And so we feast. We celebrate Jesus, his saving work. One of the ways we do it is through communion, the Lord's Supper. Every week here, we take the the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. 
That's a celebratory feast. We do it through gathering around tables, fire pits together in joy, in community, as God's redeemed. And we fast and pray as we wait like John for the coming of the Messiah. In our case, his second coming, when he will welcome us to the greatest of banqueting tables, namely the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19. Knowing that that we won't be fully satisfied until that day, and so we express our hunger through the discipline of fasting. It's our way of symbolically crying out with the Apostle John, amen, come Lord Jesus. We'll get there soon enough. I think it's chapter eight where Jesus unpacks the meaning or the reason for parables, what he's doing there. I'll wait until chapter eight to to get to that because that's what Luke does and then we'll come back and look at this parable maybe and, and make sense of what he was doing in the rear view mirror. But for now, let me just read verse 36. Through an illustration, Jesus tries to make sense of what he's saying. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. How silly, Jesus says, none of us would do this to ruin a perfectly new suit or dress by tearing it in pieces in order to use the new to patch the old. How foolish to put new wine into old wineskins, knowing that the new wine will expand and eventually stretch and destroy the very thing holding it together. This is not some lesson on embracing novel ideas and, or ministry strategies in the church, which is how Christians oftentimes misuse this parable. Now, this is about the gloriously new thing that God has done in Christ in bringing the kind of joy and forgiveness that can't be patched on or bottled up. Jeremiah 31, very famous passage, speaking of the new covenant to be established in Jesus. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. He goes on to say, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, not tablets of stone. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for, and here's why, the reason, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Those are the glorious promises that Jesus Christ came to secure in establishing a new covenant in his blood. The age of forgiveness signified by a party at Levi the tax collector's house. A foreshadowing again of the, of the wedding supper of the lamb to come where forgiven sinners will gather around the heavenly, heavenly banqueting table with Jesus Christ. That through the, the parable, Jesus makes clear that he hasn't come to establish some patchwork form of Judaism nor something to simply place on top of the traditions of the Pharisees. In the words of one commentator, you cannot pour Christ into the old wineskins of the Mosaic law. He bursts those skins and you lose Christ. 
You cannot attach Christ to the garment of the old system. He doesn't match. And trying to attach him will tear the new work of Christ apart. It's what the author of Hebrews was warning his audience of. It's what Paul talks about in Galatians 5 in calling the church not to abandon the freedom, the hope, and the joy that's found in the forgiveness that's ours in Jesus Christ. Sadly, Jesus knew that many wouldn't, wouldn't receive what he had come to bring, which is why he issues the warning of verse 39, saying, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. Right? Simply put, we, I mean, we tend to stick with what we know, right? what's familiar to us, particularly when what we know makes us feel good about ourselves, even superior to other people, particularly when the new thing invites us to come to the end of ourselves, to repent of our righteousness. And yet, what Jesus offers us is so much better. A seat at the table of forgiveness where true freedom, hope, and joy is found. Philip Ryken, in his commentary, says you cannot simply patch a little bit of Jesus onto your old way of life. You cannot keep him bottled up inside your old religion. Jesus insists on giving sinners the new clothes of his righteousness and the new wineskins of his grace filled with the new wine of his spirit. If you do not know Jesus for sure, he says, you really ought to try him. Like stepping into the house of Levi and knowing what it is to be forgiven what it is to sit at the table of grace, not grumbling on the outside, whether in the irreligiosity of your tax booth or the religiosity of your pharisaical presence and crowd. If you're not a Christian, you're invited by God's grace. You don't have to bring anything to the table but your sin. And if you do know and love and follow Jesus, if we can be brutally honest here for a second, do we ever really graduate beyond the danger of adopting a pharisaical spirit? There's this thing that happens where the longer people are Christians sometimes, the more arrogant they become. How? Like, that's the thing that should blow our minds, not looking in on the scandal of what's happening in the house of Levi. It's always lurking around the corner, that danger of adopting that kind of pharisaical spirit, the idea that our well-being comes from our place on the ladder, that true happiness is found in looking down on others. All it takes, and many of us know this, myself included, all it takes is the completion of the next theology book on the list or the next church leadership opportunity or invitation. Next thing you know, that some of the greatest publicans, the greatest tax collectors, they oftentimes go on to become some of the greatest Pharisees. They jump the gospel path from one ditch to the other. It's quite the leap, actually. So how do we avoid that as the church? I think it's, it's really quite simple. We avoid those kinds of dangers by never ceasing to acknowledge our desperate need for Jesus Christ as we continually abandon ourselves and run to him, that that's where true celebration and joy is found. That's where the party's at. Poor in spirit sinners, desperate for and having tasted true forgiveness in Jesus Christ, who keep coming back to that well over and over and over and over again, 
because they know that to run any place else is to oppose their own joy. So that we just keep singing and we never stop singing. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And so I would invite us over the course of these next few moments together, we're gonna sing. We're in the house of Levi right now, the assembly of the saints. So we should party through our song, our collective song. That's unique to spaces like these. We should sing loudly because he's worthy of it. If Levi was willing to spend his cash reserves, we should be willing to spend our voices for a little bit. You have an opportunity to receive of that feast, the Lord's Supper. If you missed it on your way in, there are uh, communion cups on the back table there on your way uh, toward the exit. You're welcome to go grab one of those over the course of these next couple of songs. We don't have a moment where everyone receives those elements together. We leave that to you over the course of those two songs when you're ready to do so. Taking the bread representing the broken body of Christ, dipping it in the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you, by the way. What a beautiful opportunity to symbolically sit at the table of forgiveness. I'll hit on the implications as we exit this space when I come back up for the benediction. But for now, let me just pray and let's do a little partying together to the glory of God.